Look, I believe in one simple truth. You don't have to be superhuman to be a superhero. There are heroes all around us. Heroes of culture, business, philanthropy, and technology. And on this show, I'm going to talk to them all. My name is Joe Anthony, and this is Hero Talk. Welcome to another episode of Hero Talk, where we talk to ordinary people doing extraordinary things, heroes of culture, art, community, business, technology, who all have one thing in common, they want to change the world. Today, I am extremely honored. I have an amazing guest that accolades uh, are just too long to, um, to rattle off, but uh, I'm here with an amazing photojournalist, my friend, Stephanie Sinclair. How you doing, Stephanie? I'm good, I'm good. I'm awesome. so glad to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I really feel like the, the genesis of you getting here, and I use the word genesis a lot, um, is somewhat serendipitous because I first came in contact with your work um, at Photoville in Brooklyn, um, you know, the uh, container museum that they do every year down there by, uh, I think it's uh, Brooklyn Heights, kind of in that mm -hmm. area. Uh, and um, I think your container was one of the first containers I walked into, and I was just completely moved, completely blown away by what I saw. And um, ironically, we were running a campaign for a client uh, around breast cancer, and I'm not sure how your name came up. I'm not sure if I, I threw it in the mix or our producer John did, but. Um, as soon as your name kind of came up, it was like, we got to work with Steph. Mm -hmm. I mean, she just has an eye for this subject matter. And now you're here talking with me on my new show, and I'm just extremely, extremely excited to have you here. Um, you know, one of the things that really kind of struck me about your work, um, there seems to be kind of a trend right now. I'm not sure how much of a trend it is because the stuff that you've been doing, you've been doing your whole career yeah. um, around this kind of concept of kind of photo activism. Right. I'm not sure if that's a terminology that's thrown around within your kind of community and amongst your peer group from an outsider looking in, um, looking at the work that you're doing, especially in the time and society that we're in. Um, I don't think that there's more of a befitting term than kind of photo activism, because I really see that not only do you take the time to chronicle certain events around the world that people don't have an awareness of or a window into, but you're really doing this with the hopes of it sparking conversation that ultimately ignites change. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people communicate more visually than they ever have. Mm -hmm. We have Instagram, we have, you know, all kinds of different mobile, you know, apps that are happening that people are constantly scre screening through, in through mm -hmm. images. So mm -hmm. um, I think it's actually, you know, Photojournalism's had a tough time in publishing, but mm -hmm. it actually has never been a better time to communicate about issues through photography. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I agree. I think photo activism is a good word, and um, and it's definitely what I think myself and many photojournalists are trying to do. Because you're not out. You don't want to just. You're not a war tourist. You don't want to mm -hmm. go to cover. Uh, you know, the invasion of Iraq or what's happening in Syria. I mean, people are risking their lives. Absolutely. You don't do that for any reason but for people to help those who are living in these situations to have their voices amplified and raised so people could hear them and and understand what their needs are. When's the first time you picked up the camera 
and knew that this is what you wanted to do. And when did you know that you wanted the subject matter that you focus on to be what it is? Well, I mean, so, you know, as we were discussing earlier, I was actually a poetry major, <laughs> and I was a very bad poet. <laughs> but what happened was my mom was a prolific painter, hmm. and she was actually kind of like a hyper-realism painter. And she, um, but my, I grew up surrounded by art, hmm. and, and, um, and I wanted to do something that was creative because I saw how much joy doing creative work brought my mother. And, um, and so, you know, I, I kind of didn't make it in, uh, in poetry and I couldn't really draw stick figures very well. So I kind of, I kept searching and I, and I really always believed that like real life was more interesting than anything I could make up myself. Mm. And so I had a friend. Was there a moment that that kind of epiphany happened for you? Like where you saw some real life subject matter that kind of turned that switch and said, that's what I want my medium to be? I would say probably the first time I saw Donna Ferrato's work. Mm. Um, she did a book called Living with the Enemy, mm. and it was about um, domestic violence survivors. And I, I, you know, I had thought I thought that photography was interesting, but I wanted it to I wanted it to say something. Mm. And and I was that was the first time I understood that photography could be used in activism, could be used to. Um, to engage people, to make them feel and be outraged. I mean, I was kind of always outraged, you know, as a, no. as a young person anyway. No. I mean, I really, I still am. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think that, I don't know, I just, I've always wanted, felt like we need to, we're as kind of as successful as, you know, as we take care of those around us. And, and so, and and so this was the way to do What do you attribute that to? Like, what do you attribute that kind of mindset? Where does it come from, this kind of, um, passion and empathy and kind of desire to expose certain truths or use your medium as a force for good and change. Where does, you know, you could have shot anything. You could have shot fruit, right? You could, yeah. <laughs> you could have shot beautiful models, you know, like for Vogue and stuff. What, what really kind of made you want to use it as a force for humanity? I mean, I think you know, my mom, again, my mom just was such a big influence on me. Mm. She she used to say, don't judge anybody, you know, don't ever say harsh words to people because you don't know what they've been through that day. Mm. And she always really instilled in me a real, my mom was the most compassionate human being. And I'm much tougher and kind of with my words and things than she ever was. I mean, mm. she, I, I, and, um, you know, I still don't rise to her level of, of compassion and, and empathy for people, but I, you know, I still try, and I think it just comes from having, a, being raised with someone who had limitless empathy for people. Now you went to University of Florida, mm -hmm. Go Gators. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are it's you great. from Florida? I am. I'm from Miami originally. Oh, okay, Miami. All right, the land of you know, the, the, you got Sin City, and then you got Miami, and then you got yeah. the photographer who's developing this amazing sense of compassion and empathy. How that happened? I mean, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> were you well, a party girl in Miami? I, no, no, I wasn't. <laughs> and so I've always been, you know. I was in the punk rock scene in, in Florida, okay. you know, I was not ever like a beach girl. Got I was it. not that kind of person. And um, Not the oof, oof, oof club. No, I mean, I mean, it just didn't relate. And so I think that's why I ended up in New York. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I just didn't. Florida, but what's interesting is Florida's really like, you know, such full of weirdos and yeah. stuff like that. I so. mean, it was so transient. I mean, 
80s, 70s, I'm imagining, is when you just started to kind of see things, obviously big-time drug Yeah, big era. drug big drug culture at the yeah. time. I mean, yeah. like, you know, constantly. How was I mean, that, growing up around that? I mean, were you exposed to any of it? Did you see yeah, it? Of course was I was. Yeah, 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 I'm yeah, from yeah. Miami, so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mean, everybody knew somebody who was dealing drugs or doing something. I mean, mm. this is how it was. My best friend, one of my best friends, like, my boyfriend was was you know in rehab with her was her boyfriend who was a drug dealer i mean this is kind of just how things were in miami mm. just everybody was kind of in that world um but i was always pretty nerdy you know yeah. and still kind of like kind of do-gooder and i ended up on the kind of straightest you know band bandwagon for a while and then and then you know i really just still believed in not I, well. I think maybe it's because in Miami I saw people kind of yeah. things not work out real well from yeah. in in a lot of inju injustice and what happens to people when um, when things aren't right. I mean, a lot of the drug culture comes from poverty. Yeah. You know, it comes from people wanting to have more than they have. So, went to University of Florida. Was your first major job after that at the Chicago Tribune? It was. Okay. It okay. Was. So tell us a little bit about your experience there, because from what I've read, they kind of threw you in the fire right away and was like, "You're going to Iraq." I mean, well, not quite. Not <laughs> okay, quite. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, I got a job. I I got a job working in the suburbs for the okay. Chicago Tribune in the beginning, and I okay. had like terrible jobs doing that. <laughs> like I had to photograph the beekeeper when it wasn't bee season and things like that. So, but then, I mean, I think that that kind of stuff really like, you know you really cut your teeth on it because mm. you learn how to make pictures out of nothing. Mm. And then, so when then you do get into a situation that's extraordinary, like going to Iraq, like, you know, dealing with the death penalty and mm. prosecutorial misconduct and things mm. like that, then you, but that might be sometimes challenging, you know, subject-wise or hard to get access to, you, you learn how to make pictures quickly in difficult situations. Yeah. yeah. So. So. I mean, you, you started to talk a little bit about some of the work that you did while you were at the Tribune, and one of the things that kind of stuck out at me is the work that you guys collectively won a Pulitzer for, which was the work around the death penalty in Illinois. Well, that's not what the Pulitzer was for, actually. The Pulitzer was for a big, uh, a big project that the newspaper did on... Um, on the airline industry. Oh yeah, that's right. Okay. But okay. the but the prosecutorial misconduct and death penalty story mm -hmm. did actually lead to um, the governor putting a moratorium on the death mm -hmm. penalty, which was pretty substantial. And that was one of the moments where I really understood the power of journalism. Wow. Um, because you know that's a big deal to stop, you know, many people from going, you know, from who are on death row and having them have a new lease on life, particularly because so many people were there. Um, that their cases were shoddy. So was that prior or before you were in the Middle East? That was before I went to the Middle okay. East. Okay, so you went, you had this you know, incredible experience in using photography as a medium, and you saw the impact it can have on really creating social change. You now go to the Middle East with this kind of mindset uh, you know, of being able to capture content that could potentially you know, just reveal neutral. So what was the eye or the perspective that you were going to the Middle East with? What did you want to see? What did you want to capture? Was there an, um, a specific um, directive that you got from your, uh, from your editor or it was like, just go out there and shoot everything? 
No, I specifically wanted to do the story on the Iraqi civilians, mm. you know, the population who's kind of stuck in this situation and this invasion is going to happen. I went to Iraq actually a couple months before the war happened. Mm. And um, I got to kind of see what life was like, uh, what life was like under Saddam and um, meet a lot of beautiful people. Like mm -hmm. when I first got off the plane um, in Iraq, uh, it was my first kind of trip to a place that was, you know, living under a severe dictatorship. And you, uh, when you get off the plane, it's, it literally said, down USA mm -hmm. in big red letters. And you have to walk over that to like enter the airport. And I remember being like, whoa, this mm. is like, this is, this is real. And then I, um, and then I went in to the hall to pick up my bags and this guy comes over and he, and he with this beautiful smile, and he comes over and he goes, let me get your bags. And he goes, welcome to Iraq, your second home. <laughs> and then that really showed me immediately like how, how like one perspective that we have on something can be so different than mm. what the reality is. And, um, and so I spent about two and a half months before the war um, happened and kind of documenting daily life there and really fell in love with so many people that I met. And, uh, and that guy's name was Allah, and he worked with me for um, a couple of years. Uh, and we're still in touch. I mean, I've just spoke with him, you know, recently. So he's trying to come to the U.S. Um, and, uh, but we, you know, this is a little bit of a tangent, but, you know, I actually you know, got he and his family when the invasion uh, turned out to be like a full-on war that lasted for several years, uh, I got his family to Germany. Wow. Um, you know, so I definitely, so those friendships are real. And, um, you know, one of my other translators, his name is Osama, he lives in Orlando. And, like, we talked also recently, like a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, yeah. like, it's so, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it's just, I think that I, I wanted to tell that story. Hmm. That, that people named Allah and Osama yeah. were just like, you know, just like we felt during September 11th. We, you know, had this attack happen that destroyed, you know, these two iconic buildings in our community. They killed, you know, thousands of people. But, you know, the wars that are going on um, have, are also killing, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And they're real people, too. Just like those were real people to us. Those are real landmarks. The feelings we felt, that's what they're feeling every day. And, um, and so I wanted to communicate that. So you stayed in the Middle East for a little while, though, right? Not just in Iraq. You've moved around. You've been in Lebanon and some, yeah. some other parts of the Middle I East. I lived there for six years. Hmm. And I, I was based in Iraq for two years, and then I was based out of Lebanon for four Okay. And I, you know, and then I, I in traveled, Beirut? yeah, in Beirut, uh, okay. and which was basically the Miami of the Middle East. <laughs> and um, no, I've never heard that. But. It totally is. Uh, <laughs> it definitely is. It's during the drug era, or just <laughs> just in general, like the okay. women there are like stilettos and really? look amazing, wow. and everyone's like at eight o'clock in the morning, looks like they just walked out of like a fashion shoot. So, um, <laughs> and the food's amazing, and you know, it's a lot of fun. Beirut's actually a really fun city. Is it, I mean, is it as dangerous as people say? At the same time, you have all this um, beauty and fun and cosmopolitan behavior, but this, were you ever afraid? Were you ever in a situation where you felt as if uh, you were unsafe or unwelcome? Not unwelcome. Um, I mean, definitely I didn't feel unwelcome, but I mean, I was there in 2006 when yeah. Israel, you know, and Hezbollah went to war. Um, and that was, you know, you could hear bombs dropping and, you know, our, our windows shook. Mm -hmm. So, I mean... And I covered that conflict, um, but 
I don't know. It's one of those things. Like when you're in a conflict, you're in a really dangerous situation. It usually seems pretty okay until it's not. Yeah. I mean, that's really the reality of it. I mean, but there are certain ways to kind of stay, to take more calculated, you know, risks and understand where 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 it is more dangerous than, than other places. And so, how do you prepare yourself for something like that? I mean, do you go in with just kind of a sense of optimism? Are you always on guard? Do you understand that you're there as press to tell a story and anticipate that you're going to be seen as that? Or is there always kind of, um, you know, a sixth sense that you kind of have to continually tap into, um, knowing that you're kind of in a place that's not necessarily inherently <laughs> welcoming the Westerners? I mean, I will say that, so when I was there, I was there from 2002, more or less, till mm. 2008 mm. Um, in the Middle East. And right after 9-11. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but I wasn't there when they were, when there was like, you know, when ISIS was kind of doing, mm -hmm. you know, the things that were, you know, beheading people in Syria and things like that. Um, I will say I, I generally felt pretty welcome in both countries. Mm -hmm. um, and I worked all throughout the Middle East. And, and I would say they really, at the ISIS aside, most people understood the difference because many of them lived under bad governments, understood that maybe the decisions that our governments were making at the time didn't reflect the people who, um, who were coming to tell these stories. So there was a, a sophistication there mm. that I wasn't, most of the time was not lumped in with American policies, American foreign policy. Now, you obviously um, cover a lot of subject matter um, that's gender sensitive, right? Um, around women's rights or the lack thereof or um, how women are being treated around the world. Did, did the inspiration to start, um, you know, capturing that content come from your time in the Middle East? Because obviously there's, uh, it's, it's known that women's rights there are, are kind of non-existent. Well, actually, it kind of came from my mom's upbringing. Mm. You know, my, um, my mom was really not encouraged to go to school. She was not, um, you know, she, her second husband was, um, you know, he was violent with her. Um, and, and we had, you know, I'm from the, my family's from Alabama. So mm. I, I was raised with a lot of crazy stuff, mm. you know. And, um, and so I was able to see kind of how, you know, when my mom wanted to go to school, she, her family actively said, you know, absolutely not. Who do you think you are? Women don't get educated. And then what I saw when I went to the Middle East and when I was working in places like Afghanistan was kind of a reflection of kind of the extreme case of what my mom was facing. Mm. So I always brought the experience I was, the experiences I was witnessing, I personalized them and made them really tried to see just how, you know, there before the grace of God go us, that we didn't end up in a situation born in the birth lottery somewhere else, that, um, you know, at least that it was a right to put children in, in, in school and have them, it was compulsory to have them go through, you know, at least 16 years old. And, and my mom was able to be part of the women's movement, you know, as she grew up through the 70s, you know, 60s and 70s, and she had the confidence to demand to, you know, to, to go back to school no matter what her family said. And then I watched in other places in the world where women just weren't, you know, those, those um, 
rights, those movements for their rights hadn't really, they needed so much more support. And I felt like as the child of, of a very strong woman who, um, who was very independent and, and, and felt confident to go pursue my dreams to the nth degree, that I, it was my responsibility to then help those women and girls around the world and enable them to do the same. So why Too Young to Wed, right? That's the, the, the work that I was introduced to you through. Mm -hmm. um, the this, this stuff obviously stopped me in my tracks when I looked at your work and just couldn't believe that I was ignorant to this, right? That this was going on, that 12-year-old girls were being kind of forced into marriage and probably even someone younger than that mm -hmm. were being forced into to marrying, you know, middle-aged men um, and I'm not sure if this was your your first foray into kind of a you know a gender sensitive issue like that um, but why what what were you exposed to that made you say I have to document this um, there was a very specific instance mm -hmm. I was in Afghanistan and I was um, I was assigned to go photograph girls who'd set themselves on fire. And this was in Herat, Afghanistan. Mm. And um, it was just some, it was kind of a, a phenomenon, but they didn't really know why it was happening. They just heard that several girls were doing this in the northern, um, in this northern province. And so, um, so I traveled there and I met all these girls. And uh, there's one girl in specific, her name was Marzia. And she was married uh, when she was just nine years old, and uh, she was 15 when I met her, and she um, basically tried to commit suicide because she broke her husband's television set. And, and I, you know, that obviously you don't do something like that unless you are, have so much fear of what, would, what the repercussion mm. of that is going to yep. be. And so, um, and so, you know, I found out that when I spoke to, there's about, I would say, eight girls who had set themselves on fire and about half of them were married really young. And I didn't understand that girls even got married that young. Mm. And, um, but the girls that I spoke to were married at nine, 10, 11. And, um, and really they were committing suicide over continuing to be in the lives that they were living. And, but you can't report on something that's that's dramatic without kind of looking at the root causes. And so I did research <clears throat> I did research on uh, child marriage and really noticed that there were no photographs about it. There was, a, there was some research done by um, several uh, nonprofits and uh, aid organizations, but there were no good photographs. They were just kind of smiling girls with it. And I knew mm. that there was space there to make photographs that, um, that, sh that showed what would lead to this. And um, so I started working on that in Afghanistan and have expanded that project to about 10 countries mm. now, um, just photography-wise. Um, it's actually an issue in more than 50 countries around the world. Wow. I want to show you a couple of pictures, and I, I want you to kind of uh, give the viewers some context into what's happening. So this first one is um, looks like a, a newlywed couple that's just been married, and they're, they're sitting down on a rug. But... As you can see, the, the girl looks like she's 10 years old or younger. Now, can you give us some insight into what was happening there? Yeah, absolutely. So that young girl, um, she was actually 11, so it's very close. And um, she, that was actually the first time she'd ever met 
her, that was her fiance at the time, but that was the first time they'd ever met. And he was clearly decades older than her. Mm. And, you know, I asked her, I said, what do you think is going to, you know, what's your life going to be like? How are you feeling today? And she was just looked at me very seriously and said, how, how, how do you think I feel? Mm. And um, how do the men respond when you're taking a picture? They just think this is. They just okay, don't see anything yeah, wrong with it. Yeah. I will say that um, there were two cousins who, so that was also both, that was, that I photographed during the same trip to Afghanistan, two cousins, and um, at separate locations. And um, one of the other girls' father told me, he, he could, he was, you could tell he was a little bit ashamed. And he mm. said, You think I want to marry my daughter off at this age? He's like, but he didn't have, they were in such a rural area that he said, we can't feed the children we have. And so... So they're selling the daughters off, essentially. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's exactly what um, her mother said. She said, mm. well, I'm selling my daughter off. And that's basically the biggest problem and why I chose to continue working on the issue of child marriage. Because child marriage is one of those things where uh, it's, the, it's kind of the the best example of where a girl is really, the biggest problem girls have and is that they're valued really for their bodies. They're valued for sexuality, they're valued for fertility, and they're valued for labor. Mm -hmm. And labor that happens like after marriage commonly of like cleaning the house, working in the field, you know, doing okay. everything. Yeah. But they're not valued for their spirits, their intellect, and so really, and the other thing that I learned is that if we could raise the age of marriage, then girls would be subjected to less domestic violence because they would be respected more. They would be, um, they would stay in school longer. They would um, be have be healthier during childbirth. You know, a lot of times when they give birth, their when they're so young, their hips aren't wide enough, so they have obstructed labor. They die, and their mm. kids die mm. during childbirth. Um, so there's so many issues that happen that are related to this issue that I felt that if my goal was really to protect girls' rights and to help girls around the world, that if that this was one of those root cause issues that would address all of these mm. topics. Wow. So, you know, abuse is obviously something that you take seriously as well. I mean, you talked a little bit about um, your personal experience with your mom. And one of the photos that I found extremely compelling was uh, a young girl who's on the roof bathing, but you can see that she's been literally burned with acid. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and this is not just a one-time freak occurrence. It seems like acid is um, a, a tool of choice to inflict, you know, I, I don't know if it's uh, punishment, um, discipline or whatever it is on young girls. I mean, what's, what's, what's that about? I mean, I, I can't even imagine, I can't even find the words to kind of articulate, you know, what I, because it just sounds so absurd. Yeah. Uh, but it seems to be something that's commonly practiced. It's, it's very much um, meant to disfigure girls mm. and women who it happens to. And it's meant to um, humiliate them permanently. It's like one of those, if I can't have you, nobody can mm. kind of situations. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, what so was are these girls being rebellious? Or are they, you know, saying, Hey, I, I don't want to be married. Are, are they demanding a divorce and this happens? I mean, what could potentially trigger something like this? Acid attacks happen for a lot of different reasons. And actually they don't happen just to women, but they do primarily happen to women. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it is a very cruel way to exact revenge. Mm. And, um, and so, you know, basically one of the main, you know, one of the common reasons this happened is a girl rebuffing a guy in some mm-hmm. way. So Ritu, who's in that photograph, mm-hmm. she um, was a star volleyball player. She was very into her athletics and her cousin wanted to marry her and she was still in high school. And she said no. Uh, she wasn't interested. And so he, he burned her with acid. And um, the cool part is, though, is that Ritu now works um, at a cafe called Shiro's Cafe. Mm. It's actually right across, um, very close to the Taj Mahal mm. in Agra, India. And um, she uses her time to, um, to educate tourists about wow. acid attacks. And they're, you know, they've, um, and they're trying to kind of make it more difficult for people to get acid, to make it um, punishments more severe for those who use this form of attacking um, women. Because in the picture, she actually looks like she's jubilant a little bit, mm-hmm. like she's actually at peace. And I don't know if it's because she's found a purpose. Um, you know, it, what's her mindset now? Is it, is it because she's found this purpose through this tragedy? that she looks like she's still trying to move forward and enjoy life? Absolutely. I mean, she is, I, I found most of the girls were, were, were quite resilient. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's a brutal thing that, that happens. And mm-hmm. she's been through seven surgeries. She has a prosthetic eye, um, you know. How old was she when this happened? I think she was 17. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, She's she's a tough girl. She's a tough cookie, and she's she's confident and and I think she's she has found a lot of healing through what through the cafe and through sharing her story. And um, what was so beautiful is so I had photographed at the cafe, and it was one of those photographer moments where you feel like, oh, you know, I've spent all this time with them. I think I've got what I need, but I'm just mm-hmm. gonna hang out a, a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it was monsoon season, it had been raining, and the light was crap. And I was just like, just hanging out with them, really. And then she's like, I think we're going to go bathe on the roof. You want to come? And I was like, yeah, I want to go. That's amazing. And so they went upstairs, um, she and one of the other girls, and they just stood there in the rain and were just like dancing in the rain and just being bathed. And, and in fact, for me as well, it was like just spending all this time working on all these really difficult stories it was such a beautiful, cathartic moment of mm. just being cleansed by nature mm. and by the healing powers of just being on the right side of history mm. and fighting for good and not being you know, dissuaded no matter what comes your way. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, this last photo I want to show you, I mean, we're all familiar with Boko Haram and what's going on in Nigeria. A few years ago, Bring Our Girls Back, um, we saw... Um, that massive group of young women, Nigerian women, who were um, kidnapped. Um, there's reports now that they've, you know, they've been freed. Uh, but you have these three girls here um, that obviously have been, um, they were either sold or, or kidnapped by Boko Haram. Um, I mean, first of all, how did you even find these girls? And uh, um, tell us a little bit about their story and, and maybe give a little insight into um, kind of what's going on in Nigeria with this particular group that a lot of people don't know a lot about. Um, I'm glad you asked. Um, so those girls are three sisters who were all kidnapped. They were abducted by Boko Haram out of their village. Mm-hmm. And um, the girl in the middle, her name's Yakaka, and she's 
like looks like she could you can't really tell from that photograph but she looks like a runway model she's mm -hmm. incredibly beautiful and uh, the fighters came in and they said they were they were taking over the village and they said I want to marry your daughter and um, she and they were and no, he, the fighters came in and told her, I want to marry you. And she said, absolutely not. And he goes, and she was like, my parents won't let you anyway. He goes, okay, well, I'll kill them, and then they'll let me marry you. Then I can marry you. And she's like, okay, wait, okay, I'll, I'll just marry you, fine. And so that's how she ended up marrying them. Mm. And not only was she married to them, but she was, you know, forced to um, have a baby who was um, stillborn. So, because she escaped and, uh, and couldn't care for the baby mm -hmm. and, and, uh, when she was pregnant and mm -hmm. she ended up with a stillborn child. Wow. So the girls that I met in Nigeria are some of the toughest things I've ever witnessed in like 20 years of doing this. And the girls- They look so stoic. They look so strong in spite of having to deal with such tragedy. I mean, where do they find that strength? Well, that was what was so, beautiful is that like so Yakaka I asked her I said well what do you want like you've been through this crazy unimaginable ordeal something that we couldn't even nobody can even fathom what you've been through and what do you want what do you want the world she goes I just want to go to school like that's what she wanted mm. I just want to go to school so my organization too young to wed obviously we gave her a scholarship and put her mm. back in school but um but the thing is is you know, and, and I'm glad you bring up, bring, uh, bring up the Bring Back Our Girls campaign mm -hmm. because even though there were 276 girls who were abducted from a Christian school, but um, officials there say that, you know, they think that they're, that the words that the, the Nigerian official told me is that Boko Haram girls are only 0.1% of the amount of girls who've been abducted mm -hmm. by Boko Haram. So that's, they believe there's tens of thousands of girls still missing that people aren't looking for. Mm. And I think in part, you know, it's a touchy subject, but in part because it's mostly Muslim girls. Yeah. Uh, it's also because they're African girls. Um, and it's in an area where people don't want to deal with the Boko Haram situation. They don't know how to handle it. And, but truthfully, this is where you're seeing child marriage being used as a weapon of war. Mm. And, um, you know, they, these girls are being forced to give birth to children who then will be then trained to be fighters for Boko Haram. Mm. And it is, for me, it's the most urgent issue I've covered in, in my whole life. Because I feel like we will lose a generation of girls. And not just girls, but we will allow this indoctrination of all these children if we don't put pressure on the Nigerian government to start rescuing some of these girls. Now, a lot of people think, you know, the Nigerian government um, is very apathetic to this. Um, they're not doing enough. They could be doing more. Um, aside from, you know, the media and sensationalizing this issue in the media, bringing it to people's attention, what can people do to help persuade them to get more involved in protecting these girls? I think there needs to be another Bring Back Our Girls campaign. It mm. just needs to be Bring Back All Our Girls. Mm. <laughs> I mean, there's tens of thousands of girls missing. Mm. But, you know, I think that people don't relate as much because they weren't Christian girls. And I think there's a lot of fear, I mean, mm. because of terrorism. And, but I, I really think that they're, that it's, it's urgent. And, I, and the Bring Back Our Girls campaign was, was really helpful. And it did mm. put pressure on. 
And when I spoke to the Nigerian uh, officials, they told me, you know, we have the pressures on us to find the Chibok girls. So we are finding them. And now most of them are released. Mm. There needs to be pressure for all the girls that are missing. And people, we can do that. Mm. We just have to kind of figure out and mobilize to do it. Well, content just plays such a big part to your earlier point about us being in such a visual age. Um, is the government being um, open to letting journalists and storytellers coming in uh, come into their country to try and tell stories around this, so that people can become educated and become more involved? Or, or are they, you know, because to some degree this is kind of a blemish on their face, right? So, is there a reluctancy, or are they actually being? Um, you know, involved and, and, and open and, and allowing storytellers like yourself to come in there and, and kind of illuminate this issue globally? I think, I mean, the girls aren't that hard to find. They're living in the host community. They're living in the city of Mataguri. Mm. They're not even in the IDP camps. Mm. So they weren't that hard to find. I mean, I think it's just a matter, you just have to go to Mataguri, you have to get a visa to go. Yeah. But there are plenty of journalists who go. It is somewhat dangerous because it's a bit of an unstable area. Um, but I don't think, I don't think it's the journalists, I mean, we've, the New York Times, that, our project was published in the New York Times, mm -hmm. um, I, and the, the Times has since done several stories, you know, I think that there's some stories that are being done, but there needs to be, I think, more kind of collective campaigns, campaigns yeah. that need to happen yeah. that are not reliant on individual one story yeah. published here and there, but like mobilization well, What of I people. notice is that there's a media life cycle to like every campaign once something happens, right? And then once it's not news anymore, um, you know, the NGOs or, or the special interest groups or even the celebrities who get out in front of something when it's relevant, they start to kind of move on and they start to look for other kind of flags to wave or other things to kind of get involved with. All right, I checked that box, I did this. I kind of, you know, yeah. invested my time in raising awareness about this current issue. Um, we're seeing the same thing happen in Flint, Michigan right now, and people are still drinking toxic water, right? It's insane. And, and it's insane, and, 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 and the government is talking about it's gonna take three years to change all the pipes in people's homes. Mm -hmm. We as private citizens have the ability to change the pipes in their homes now just like we have the ability to put greater pressure on the Nigerian government to bring more girls home now. It's just about consistency and choosing to kind of be committed to a specific issue versus one that just happens to be the story of the day. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not sure who, who is going to catalyze that. And, you know, you had someone like Michelle Obama, who is, you know, one of my superheroes. Um, do people like that have to be more consistent? Do they have to kind of stay more committed to a narrative that they kind of begin? I don't know. I mean, I think this is your expertise. Yeah. This is your area of expertise yeah. Yeah. because I, you know, I'm kind of a content gatherer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't really have, you know, I don't know. It's not my expertise to, to how to develop a campaign, but I think we need more people like your, you know, like the mm. work that you guys do and to, to get behind some of these issues that haven't been, um, been out you know out there as much i mean the biggest issue is what's happening politically in the u.s is there's so many issues right now and people are kind of you know rightfully freaking out about mm -hmm. about losing you know so many rights just even health care all kinds yeah. of different things so yeah. it's kind of a difficult time to get people interested in what's happening in northern nigeria but i i, I that situation is really 
really critical. And I think there's nowhere in the world that we would be okay with tens of thousands of girls being abducted and and forced in you know yeah. to have sex with these guys and bear their children and girls told me crazy stories about being threatened to that they they would intimidate them from leaving because they, by burning one of their other girls in front of them and threatening this will happen to you if you leave if you attempt if we catch you you're going to be set on fire in front of the rest of your friends it's the worst stuff mm. I've ever heard in 20 years. Wow. Mm. And people don't understand how bad it is. And so I'm all ears. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I just get, I get frustrated sometimes because I do think that there are uh, individuals like you who are so committed to a cause and seeing it all the way through. And then what we're seeing in um, the U.S. particularly is people kind of riding these waves of momentum almost as if, uh, social issues are trends, mm. like they're trending topics that we want to attach ourselves to to get a little kind of wind in our own sails versus really truly being committed to seeing that cause all the way through to completion. And I think people like you continue to be a beacon and a benchmark to say if we're really going to be activists, which, which is a term that I think is being thrown around very liberally right now without kind of people understanding the level of commitment that they need to kind of invest mm -hmm. in order to kind of create change versus just tweeting something or, you know, um, making an Instagram post about their commitment to something. There ne needs to be more of a sustained um, commitment, right? And our commitment as obviously as an agency and working like uh, with people like yourself is to figure out how long we can prolong and stretch that narrative as much as we possibly can so that we can get as many people aware and involved as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I don't know if there's, there's not a question at the end of this statement, it's just more of, um, I think, a, an observation as to um, what people need to be doing if they choose to kind of pick up this mantle of activist and want to kind of participate in this dialogue. It can't just be transactional. They have to be committed to kind of long haul. And, um, when, and I'd like to see more of that, and that, that's kind of what we're committed to in terms of trying to change the sensibility around people so they invest more. No, um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I like to think of this as like we're all spokes in a wheel yeah. for, of change. You know, like I, I can't do what you do um, or what John does or, you know, like yeah. I don't, I'm, but I also i am not a politician and yeah. I don't know. I partnered with um, a, a group in D.C. to meet with senators and Congress congressman about what was happening in Nigeria but like you have every, but I couldn't do that without their help like we're yeah. spokes in a wheel and if we all use our you know our abilities to do to do what we can do we move yeah. and, and we'll see this change happen yeah. and it's just a matter of kind of like you said focusing on an issue that and keeping with it until mm -hmm. it goes I mean that's why I've been working on the same project for 15 years. So. <laughs> so you spoke a little bit about sending this lovely girl to school. So talk to me a little bit about, um, is there a foundation connect, uh, connected with what you do? And, yeah. and so tell us a little bit about that and the work that that foundation does. So um, to kind of address the needs of some of the girls that we were meeting, that I've been meeting in the field for all this time, um, myself and... Um, you know, those those closest to me started an organization called Too Young to Wed, based after the project, and we had an international traveling exhibition as part of that. And um, yeah, I mean, it's part of it is um, our mission is to protect girls' rights and end child marriage, but part of it is 
creating this work. It's going out and finding underreported stories related to girls' issues and child marriage in particular and disseminating it widely. And then it's also on-the-ground support for girls. Um, so for, in the case, I met about 25 girls and a couple boys um, who were child soldiers, actually, that were that were um, that one of the girls rescued, and um, when she was escaping, and so we gave all of them scholarships, and we hold photography workshops that are girl empowerment slash photography workshops, and the idea is that they learn to take their own photographs, they talk about their experiences, and find bonding and community with each other, and then their photographs of each other then are disseminated again through the media and different outlets. So they, they can share their story in their own words, in their own photographs, and it keeps getting the message out in a different way. So, awesome. so that's basically what we do. Is, we kind is of, there a website? Is it mm -hmm. tooyoungtowed.com? .org. Oh, oh, .org. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So you've been published everywhere, Nat Geo, New York Times, Newsweek. You know, what's next? What's, what, what's kind of, I mean, I saw, obviously you're... Too young to wed, and 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 that whole project for you is is ever present and and evergreen. Um, but is there any other any other kind of projects uh, that you're working on right now that we should know about? Um, yeah. So I have the Too Young to Wed exhibition. Is um, it's a, there's a major exhibition at on the whole top floor of the Arch de la Défense in Paris, mm -hmm. which will run from. June 15th through the end of September, and um, actually June 1st, but the opening is actually June 15th where I'll be there. And um, so that's pretty amazing. It's 160 photographs, it's six films, and it chronicles kind of all of the, the lives of all the girls that I've met throughout awesome. these years. And then... Um, and when's that, when's that happening? June, this June through September. Awesome. And then um, we're gonna continue doing our workshops. We're gonna do a workshop um, with the girls in Nigeria. We're going to do a workshop with the acid survivors in India. So those are our next two workshops that we'll be doing. And other than that, I mean, I'm a new mom, so I stay at home oh, yeah, kind right. of working <laughs> from, you know, working on this stuff behind the scenes for this, for at this time. Awesome. Well, look, I'm Joe Anthony. This is Stephanie Sinclair, and she's definitely a hero. Thank you Thank so you. much, Stephanie, Thank for coming. Thank you for having me, Joe. Appreciate Absolutely. it. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you're you so much. Work. Thank you.